This is the Interchange Recharged, a Wood McKenzie production. I'm David Banmiller. Almost two years ago, on one of the first episodes of the Interchange Recharged, I spoke to Harold Overholm, CEO and co-founder of Alight. Back then, the focus was on the emergence of power purchase agreements in the solar industry. The PPA model, which typically meant low or no upfront cost to the host, contributed to significant uptake of solar across the world. In the Nordics, Alight were one of the largest providers of PPAs. Harold and I discussed his plans for the company and debated the future of large-scale commercial solar projects. To see how accurate these predictions were, and in light of the news a major infrastructure fund had invested 150 million euros into the business, I thought it prudent to get Harold back on the show. The solar market, as we've discussed in several of our previous Interchange episodes, check out our conversation with the SEIA back in June, is evolving fast. On the show today, we explore these developments, look at the impact of energy security of the Russia-Ukraine war, how the supply chain has changed over the years, and how batteries can continue to be integrated into the solar energy mix. Harold, it's great to have you back on the show. David, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. So it's been almost almost two years since we last spoke. So what's changed? Uh, tell us what's different with light, how things are going. Yeah, so time flies. It's almost two years. I got to start with probably the money. So uh, as you know, like we took on a chunk of funding last year. So it was in November 2022. We raised about 150 million euros to to build out the company. So that's, you know, to any company, that's like a big step. And to us, quite a small company at the time, it was huge. So what happened was that we, we raised equity in the market and we met all kinds of, as you might, might imagine, all kinds of different uh, partners, but ultimately one infra fund, an infrastructure fund called DIFF, might be you know the, the largest fund you, you never heard of. It's a low-key uh, team, but arguably one of the leading uh, mid-market infra funds in, in the world, very experienced in renewables. So we felt it was a a great match, like someone who understood us, people who were speaking our language that we could work with, that came on as a big partner in the business. And the money is meant for you know building out the business, building out the team, but also, most importantly, taking control over projects. So we're moving from a developer to an independent power producer, IPP, I guess is you know the, the industry jargon, but just someone who can we can decide ourselves which projects to build out, how to monetize them, how to make money from them. So for us, that's a massive uh, change. And then based on that, we're building out the team rapidly. So now our lives are changing. Yeah, great. I mean, the the, the investor from DIFF, uh, obviously, I think they're your majority uh, shareholder now uh, at this point with that investment. How, how did that process go? I mean, what, how have you seen the financing environment uh, change or evolve for for solar projects, solar companies over the last two years? It's been such a big change uh, because interest have been just booming in solar during a period when fundraising was so difficult for other sectors. And I mean, not, not the least tech, which is what they had a, a great decade up until. So it almost have felt unfair at some point. You had like these, you know, read about all these tech <laughs> road crashes daily. And at the same time, we, we were just seeing so much money coming into our sector. But you know, I guess that's uh, in a way way of the world. But so when we were in that fundraising, it got really intense because what started out as us just kind of looking in the market to see what we potentially could do, not really knowing what we could do, turned into us 
being able to pick and pick and choose between many different types of equity providers. And that was obviously a great, very, very intense, but, but a great situation. And I hope, um, it's still like that for anyone in solar raising money. Uh, I'd already know cause I, I really, I was very thankful to stop raising money at the point where, where they, f- they came on board. Um, and yes, you're right. They came on, bo- on board as a, as a majority owner, uh, most of us didn't sell, sell any shares. So the founders and the team and, and, um, many of the other early investors are still, uh, still fully invested, but, but with the amount of money that, that they've put in the majority position and, and a strong partner in the business. So, um, yeah, but overall, I think the, the amount of capital interest in solar has been just growing immensely. I think that's still the case and I think that's obviously a good thing, even though I'm sure there's a risk for a bit of, uh, a bit of bubble, bubble, uh, tendencies at some point, but overall it must be great for the energy transition that capital wants to come into this. And I see a light's been, been acquisitive, uh, recently as well. I know that you bought some solar assets from Vantval. Uh, how's the, how's the M&A environment, uh, for the energy transition type assets and companies? I, we don't we don't typically go into the market and buy anything operational, and I hear that 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 market is very frothy. I mean, it's like the, that's where a lot of capital want to go because it's the risk assets. But we wouldn't be in that in that market. We occasionally do stuff that that we feel that we can do in a unique way. So the Battlefield transaction was one of those things where um, a bunch of really small solar assets was was sold a lot of Battlefield to us, and and we we just have the the skill set and, and the operational. Uh, the team to take care of those assets in a good way. And I don't think pretty much anyone else had that skill set in, in our market. So that was one of those transactions where you can, you can get, um, yeah, you can just use your uniqueness to your advantage. And that's probably what we'd be looking to do in any such transaction. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always, we're always on the lookout for, for interesting things where we can come in at, at an early stage of development pipeline or with a partner that needs someone stronger to back them up. Um, the, uh, the longer, you know, the longer the industry is around, the more opportunities are generated. So I'm, op- I'm optimistic. We're going to see a lot of that going forward. Hey, I mean, light's been, been very active in, in the market since we last spoke and you, you have a, you have a partnership with, with Toyota. Uh, how's that come along? Do you see more of that, uh, in the future? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love, I love that partnership. I love Toyota. I gotta say. It's, uh, it's Toyota material handling, which is a division of Toyota. They're into forklifts and, and things that you need if you're a logistics operator. Um, and those guys, I mean, I gotta say they took a, a bet on us, uh, in 2019, four years ago, when we launched that partnership, it was, we were still a small company and they wanted, um, they were looking for someone to do solar on the rooftops. So that was behind the meter business where you go into the customer premises and you do something on the rooftop. Um. They were looking for someone to do that across Europe and they were pretty far advanced with, with, a, with another supplier, a big supplier, like a major supplier. Um, and we kind of turned up because I guess they, they were looking for someone to be, you know, column B to, to compare that with, uh, but, and I think we internally, we just went, wow, you know, this is our shot too. If we can, if we can win this, it's just enormous. So we gave it all we got. And then still they called us back after a few weeks and said, no, you know, sorry, we're going to give this to, to the other, um, to the other supplier. And we were like, oh, but you know, that just can't happen. Like we, we have to win this. So I, I guess we did everything we could. Um, 
and we turned it around. And at some point they called us and said, look, guys, we, we think you're, you're really doing a good job. Like you're very specialist. So we're going to award this to you. And it was a pan-European partnership to, to put solar, financed solar on the rooftops of Toyota's premises. Um, and we became an official supplier to Toyota, which is like enormous, you know, um, so first of all, I just got to thank them for that again. Like the, the, the team that made a decision at Toyota, I'll never forget that. So thank you guys. Now, and then with that said, like coming back to your question, it's been great, not just for the delivery that we do to Toyota, but because it's a, it's a bit of a roadmap for how we can work with others. And that's how we like to work with behind the meter is to find big fortune 500 customers and then do a, a framework, you know, do a big rollout. Um, it makes sense for us, but it makes sense for them. Uh, because then they see, then it becomes big. So doing one solar rooftop can sometimes feel like it's a too small decision to care about for, for management in, a, in any company. But if it's like all your rooftops and suddenly you're moving the proverbial needle, like you actually get something that, that's on, the, on, a, uh, on a money scale that matters and, and you're hitting maybe environmental KPIs that matters. So... And it's easy for us now to say, look at this is what we did with Toyota. It's working well, and, and you know we can do a similar setup with you. So fantastic, T Toyota. What they did when they gave us that was not just to do make us very happy, uh, and and I hope we made them happy, but also they helped to to create the market for for that in Europe. Yeah, it looks like the first rule of sales worked for you. The uh, don't take no for an answer, right? <laughs> never, never. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more activity with. CNI companies with big energy needs that are a lot more focused these days on energy management. Uh, so do you think that this is something that's going to continue to be replicated uh, in the future as this becomes more important to these types of companies? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, so, so everything that's behind the meter, everything that is about putting some, some, you know, putting energy into your own premises, like if it's the, a big solar rooftop or a solar parking lot or, or, if it's now batteries as well, you know, getting batteries to work together with that, or as as, as you were alluding to, other energy efficiency measures, um, it, it's just becoming more important, I think, by the day. And there are several reasons for it. I'd say, you know, one reason is just kind of simply knowledge and awareness of solar, batteries, of, of all the things that you can do. Knowledge is increasing. So customers just know about this. They know that they can do it. They see success stories, you know, there's a self-reinforcing um, circle, you know, your podcast is a part of that, like just people being aware, hearing this, seeing this, and that just keeps making it more important. But but the second thing is, I think, at least in Europe, the, the shock to the energy system that came uh, first from COVID and then from the Ukraine war, and people just realizing that, you know, I'm not sure I can keep the lights on in my factory if if whatever if power prices go through the roofs or there's like rolling blackouts or something then so it's become a critical question where well, five years ago maybe it was a nice to have uh esg only question now it's a critical question to see if you can build some degree of energy independence on your premises so that's i i don't think that's ever going to go away it's just going to get good better like the product's going to get better and, and the demand is going to get bigger I was going to ask you how the focus on energy security has impacted your business because it, it's been something that people have been discussing for a while, but it seems like the Russia-Ukraine conflict has kind of accelerated the need uh, or at least the focus on 
energy security. How have you seen that impact just solar overall? I think it's a huge impact and I can, I can, I was going back to our conversation two years ago and I could tell how it was, uh, I was going on and on about how PPAs and the power purchase agreements that we do, how they have to save money for customers. Like that's the number one thing we got to save money. And whilst that's still true, I've actually seen something new, I think in the markets and, and in our customers, uh, over these last two years, and um, which is that maybe stability comes before savings, like maybe just why you, for example, why you sign a PPA, maybe the first reason is to just make sure that there's stability. You know that a certain amount of your power is, is secured at, at the fixed price. And then of course, as a close second comes, you know, you want to see that that's a, that's a, um, a credible cost saving. And of course you don't want to lose money on it. You want to, you want to save some money, but it's almost like the sense of just securing power and then securing the cost of power. Uh, so it, it never becomes a prohibitive cost or it never, you never in a situation where you have to shut something down because of power cost. Suddenly that's even more top of mind than, than the saving. And, uh, I, I, I think that comes very much out of the, you know, the visceral sense everyone got, uh, in their guts when we, you know, when we woke up that, that morning last year and, and, and Russian forces had gone over the border into Ukraine is, it was just a new world, you know, and that there was a, there was a visceral sense that this changes, this might change everything. And it maybe didn't change everything overnight, but like these sorts of shocks to, to the economy and to, um, to supply security, who knows what comes next, you know, um, it woke us up to, to, uh, a new reality. Yeah. Over the past two years, I've had a lot more discussions around PPAs and I was curious how you've seen that landscape evolve over the last two years in terms of both costs as well as returns. I, yeah, so the landscape overall, I mean, has been evolving really well because of what we just talked about. So many new buyers coming into the market, the, the concept being much more well-established, um, awareness of PPAs growing, uh, very fast. Uh, and, and that just means more, more buyers coming into the market and that's good for a market, uh, right. So it's just that that's a positive thing. And that means that pricing stability or like your ability to price a PPA is, is good. I mean, it's just getting better because there's, there's an increased buyer universe. And secondly, uh, the the buyers and, and what they're looking for in the PPA has also been um, cemented by it's not just the cost savings, it's it's the supply security like we talked about. So I mean for me overall the, the PPA market is is a really well evolving market, it's a good market. It's it's um, it's helping solar along. And a lot of people are seeing that. So I mean thinking generally solar. PPAs are now mainstream, like everyone needs to understand PPAs. Everyone is understanding PPAs. It's uh um, and we're really happy for that. I mean, it was a market, we were early in this market and, and we were felt like outcasts for a while. And now, now we feel like everyone knows what we're talking about. And, uh, we just hope they, they remember that we were the pioneers, damn it. We want to, we want to be remembered as that. But you know what they say, like, uh, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. Uh, I think at this point, everyone is into PPAs and they might not, uh, give us extra credit for being early in the market. How is storage factored into your business model? Now, I know that uh, you guys can retrofit to be able to fit batteries in the, in the future, but have you thought about expanding into providing that service as well? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, we, we, we built and, and are now operating our first battery uh, storage that was co-located to solar. And we did that with 
the explicit intention of, of making that a new business line is something we do for for all our projects going forward. Um, then the big question uh, is always how you monetize uh, storage. You know, where's, what's the revenue model? Is it the same as solar? Is it the same customer customer as solar, or or are you just looking at two different markets? But it's just the assets that, that go into the same place. That's how we've done it this far because um, it's just been more practical. We've just been just a completely different buyer universe for uh, battery storage services. So whilst they're co-located into the same um, physical place, they have different buyers and different revenue models. But it, it yeah, it might make more sense to to create a combined product. And I know people doing that certainly, and, and we're certainly looking at that. But but it might also be that there's this is a transitional period for, for battery storage when um, whatever works has to work. You know, the important thing is that we keep building and keep learning. So I think you're going to see all kinds of business models being tried out by, by us and, and, and by others. Um, and typically now people make money and we make money uh, of not so much of power, uh, any kind of power trading, but just um, from frequency uh, services to the grid. So just stabilizing uh, services delivered to the grid rather than to any power user. Yeah, that, that was kind of my question because we've done uh, a number of these shows from from solar summits uh, and storage summits, and there's always discussion around the co-location versus the separate business model. So I was kind of curious how you're seeing that market uh, evolve. Yeah, it, it is evolving and, and it very rapidly. You know, but I I think it's hard to I find it hard to to make a prediction as to where it's actually heading. Uh, just because I know we're all just trying stuff out, but but I guess mainly focusing on putting batteries online, just doing whatever it takes to to put them online, and then um, things shift quickly. Like the first batteries that were put online two years ago, uh, everyone wanted to do frequency services. Then suddenly people are looking at the pipeline of batteries being put online and realizing, like, okay, you know, this is maybe it's not a great market to keep doing frequency services. Um, because you're, you know, you're unsure of what is the depth of demand versus versus supply, and then people got to look at other models. So there's this like really big dynamic going on in all markets. I think where that dynamic is is it's not just driven by you; it's driven by what you know about what everyone else is 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 putting the line and how they're doing it. So uh, um, definitely, my prediction is that it's just going to grow. A lot more people are going to put a lot more batteries online, and 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 it's going to be done in so many different ways. And from a supply chain perspective, I know we spoke about that two years ago and, and some concerns on the bottlenecks there. How has that changed uh, over the past two years? That that has changed in a really positive way. So um, when you and I spoke, it was probably at the peak of, of, sort of the troubles that came after COVID with everything from shipping breaking down to, you know, really unreliable supply of polysilicon to the market. Um, and now I've, I've, I find that whole supply chain to be sta- stabilized uh, at a good level, a pretty low, you know, cost-wise, pretty low level. Polysilicon um, just gone through um, a, a marked decrease in price for, for a couple of months and kind of stabilized. Uh, panels are also pretty stable. Uh, shipping is working where it should. So really happy about that at the moment, you know, but then... Um, we all know it's it's a it's the solar coaster. So I'm gonna I regret saying I was happy about the supply chain, uh, but but in terms of the solar coaster, I think at least right now is a, is is a time when we're heading upwards on, on the solar coaster. So um, 
uh, grateful for that. And there's been a number of uh, regulatory and, and governmental actions uh, since we last spoke, most notably the IRA. How have, uh, how have those impacted uh, your business and, and do you see that having more positive effect going forward and maybe other, other actions that might be um, on the table that, that could also positively impact solar? Yeah. Yeah, someone was asking me a similar question the other day and he even used the word uh, euphoria. So I guess uh, it's back to the solar coaster, right? You know, it's uh, there's been an element of euphoria in solar over the last year in the sense of the IRA in the US and, and similar. There's nothing as strong as the IRA in Europe, but lots of just sim positive indicators of all kinds. Again, all of the capital coming into the market. It's just a sense of like, wow, you know, solar is big and we all want to be in solar. Having been in the industry for a long, long time, it also makes me somewhat worried because whenever there's too much attention, you, you end up, you know, breaking some part of the value chain or, or creating some kind of bottleneck that you don't see. But, um, but in general, yeah, of course, I mean, Europe is, is full of positive uh, positive change that helps solar both on national levels and on the European level. E- Europe isn't as coordinated as the US, so there isn't one thing like the IRA that's driving everything, but it, there's a strong sense that um, I think everyone want to help out, help solar, help the energy transition happen. And, and it does feel to me like it's not a political issue at this point. It's not like half of the people want to help the energy transition and the other half are against it. It's, it's turned into more of like a Maybe again, it's it's the Ukraine war kind of helping us come together, but just people in general see that this, it's, it's very useful for Europe from every perspective, environmental, uh, business, security, to accelerate the energy transition. Um, and that's going to be great for our industry, but it's going to, uh, of course, lead to some kind of boom times that, that may be difficult. When you choose Wood McKenzie, you choose a true partner who brings innovation and clarity along with independent business intelligence. Our global solutions provide you the data, research, and analytics that you need to capitalize on the energy transition. We've provided energy intelligence for 50 years and over the last decade significantly scaled our power and renewables capabilities. Yet the energy transition is the biggest change we have ever seen. Market evolutions and technology revolutions have disrupted legacy business models, creating a new energy landscape. Electricity will be the dominant fuel source of the 21st century. Navigate the energy markets across policy, regulations, and technology with Wood McKenzie. Speak to us today about how our experts can help you thrive in the fast-changing power industry as we work together to transform the way we power our planet. I was going to say, it just seems like the optimism around solar has has increased over the past couple of years. I mean, you've got, obviously, the like I said, the government and regulatory actions that have been a boost for it. And solar is is more established than some of the other technologies uh, that, that we see being developed and rolled out. But it just seems like with with the establishment of solar, with a lot of the, um, the tailwinds behind it, that there's just more optimism around this is achievable. And there's a lot more that we can do with it. Do, do you see any potential obstacles in the future, or do you think that that this optimism and and push towards solar as a key piece of the energy transition is going to continue? I think it's great. I mean, to start with, the optimism is great, and we need that. You know, that's much better than pessimism. Um, 
and we need to, you know, we need to harvest, like we need to keep the momentum going. We, we need to use that momentum to make great things happen. I think definitely, you know, solar has a, has a pretty vulnerable value chain where, especially as you know, you know, there's a concentration of polysilicon production. So PV grade polysilicon is, is really the, um, that's the starting point of solar that like that's, you, you got to create polysilicon in order to create solar cells and then to put the cells into modules. So, so it, it all starts with, with polysilicon and, you know, 85% of all polysilicon, PV grade polysilicon is, is produced in, in China. Uh, th- that is just probably not wise, you know, from, from, it doesn't matter which country it is, would be, but it's just not wise from, from the supply diversity standpoint to, to have that kind of concentration. So, I mean, I think certainly if we, we as a community and we as the world aim to really span solar in the way that, that we're now talking about, uh, we need to build, uh, a more versatile and, and a more resilient value chain. And, and I, I think that's going to start with polysilicon, which is the, the really tough thing, really difficult, big industrial process to do. So that's something I'm thinking about. Um, I'm not sure I have an answer. And it's, it's just, this is something I'm reflecting upon. What are some of the, the lessons learned that you could you could share with maybe some early stage solar developers or even beyond that to other energy transition type companies that would be, um, you know, good, good kind of education or knowledge to pass along. I think one learning that, that I guess we are really happy that we had is that you can do solar anywhere. Uh, so we did solar in Sweden, which is uh, country far up north where it's like dark most of the time. Uh, and we did it in, in a completely non-subsidized market. We just made it work because solar works, you know, so uh, if you can just make the money sign work, then solar works everywhere these days. So the story of solar used to be that you go wherever the governments have, have kind of told you to go, wherever the governments have kind of planned some sort of solar rollout, and then you get into some really busy market where everyone else is going there. But that's not the story now. I mean, the story now is just like go everywhere, you know, go where you can build a niche, um, go and build those niches because you can do solar everywhere. Um, just get, you know, get get your stuff straight, you know, know what you're doing, know how to how to calculate the returns know how to find commercial off-takers and, and base solar on commercial demand, then you can do it everywhere. And that makes sense because then you can go into an underserved situation, an underserved place, you know, an underserved niche, and you can be the best at that. And like, that's, that's how businesses grow and thrive. And as an industry, we get even further away from the boom and bust cycles of the past where there are arguably a lot of that boom and bust just came out of everyone running for, for kind of the same places where, where there was some sort of positive incentive. And, and that was necessary at the time. So it's not something you want to say it was bad. It was just necessary at the time because that's where solar was at that time. But it's not where solar is now. So it can be treated more as any commercial market. I think that's a big learning. I mean, we're, we're happy that we're on the positive side of that learning. Like that was our hypothesis when we set up the light and it, it turned out to be a functional <laughs> hypothesis, but, but so it's a learning and I, I'd love to pass that along. Any other thoughts on expansion into uh, different geographies or even business lines for our light? We're kind of with the geographies in Europe. We uh, we're in many places in Europe. Uh, sometimes only operationally, like sometimes we just build assets in a place, but kind of the customer is not really a local customer, it's more like a big customer like Toyota. That I think has turned out to be a positive experience where 
it's been easier to go in operationally into new markets than we thought. So that that's the learning too. I mean, it's like just be bold and do it. But of course, you you know you got to be bold and structured. But but it can be done. You know, it, you don't have to be so worried about. After all, solar does the same thing everywhere, and it works the same way everywhere. We probably become more flexible around geographical expansion, and, and I'm I'm sure we're gonna uh, be communicating more geographical expansion uh, going forward. That, that's within Europe. We still haven't done anything outside of Europe, and I'm I'm not sure that's going to be anything we look at over the next couple of years. So I think European leadership, like a European leadership in our niche, is something we always talk about and we always think that way, and that's probably where we want to be. And I know it's probably still early, uh, given the length of tenor on the the PPAs. But I know at the end of them, you have the option to either kind of extend the PPAs or you can purchase everything outright. Do you see any trends on one way versus the other uh, at the end of the PPAs? What, what direction uh, clients will be going? Uh, we haven't come up to that point yet. <laughs> we don't have a PPA that, that, that's that, that old. And I don't, I don't think we even have a PPA that's, that's old enough for the customer to start thinking about it. So we haven't really heard like, any, any thoughts from customers. Um, I, I know in the US where there are old PPAs that it's been very common to, to just renew PPAs and kind of continue with with suppliers because it's convenient and like you know if you were happy with the way it was delivered why not just go on and do keep doing the same thing but um that's pretty much anecdotal evidence from colleagues in, in the u.s um so no it's, it's probably it's too early to tell that's why i figured i was just curious if you'd start to hear anything from clients and and where you would expect that uh, to eventually go because you know at, at some point we're going to be there where a lot of these ppas are rolling over I'd just be curious as what direction uh, they tend to go. It may just be easier to, to extend versus outright purchase and then be responsible for, for a number of things. Well, you know, we all know on a personal level, we all know, you know, those subscriptions we have, we don't even know when they expire and when they renew because that just happens. So it might be a similar phenomenon. Yeah, I know we've been talking a lot about the evolution of the industry over the past two years since we last spoke. Um, what have you seen from um, the government and regulatory involvement, support, and then flowing on to that just from the, the general public as well. You know, I, I mentioned the IRA, which we've talked a number of times on this podcast, but beyond that, uh, particularly in Europe, what do, how are you seeing that environment and that support? I'd say that support is overwhelmingly positive and, and, and it's the overarching tra- trend is, is uh, the positive support. Then I think when it comes to the public, you know, there's an inevitable element of if you start building too much solar, um, at least some people are going to get stressed out. They're going to be worried that you're going to put solar everywhere. We, we certainly, the, the debate about solar on kind of pristine nature uh, or, or agricultural land is is growing. I mean, it's growing uh, correlated to the growth of solar. And I think it's a fair debate to be having. So it's not something I'm, I'm, I'm not against having that debate. You know, solar needs to defend its license to operate in society by showing respect for for uh, other values as well and and so i don't see that as public being against solar i'm see it as as a necessary debate to be having on the public policy side in europe i mean again as we mentioned before it's it's very positive to solar and to the energy transition then i'd i'd say that there are certain things and now that the market is growing fast there's certain problems like grid um grid interconnections and grid uh timelines that the public 
policy sphere is not they're not sure how to fix it i mean they might see that it's a problem and and recognize it but it's not obvious how to fix the problem so even though the will is good and the the will is strong but but the tools are weak you know it's it's it typically the, the policymakers don't directly control grid companies and and uh there's a pretty you know, there's many steps in between where, yeah, you can change maybe grid regulations, but that's a long process and does it really matter. So I think a lot of people are struggling with, you know, how do we actually help solar? Not just say the nice words, but how do we actually help the solar industry and, and the battery industry to put things online, you know, make permits go faster, make uh, grid integrations work faster. It's a genuine question, like how do we actually do that, rather than whether there's political will or not. Um, and it's 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 a debate that we try to get into, and when we invest money and time in, in just being public about what we think and if we can help and if we can um, help be the industry voice in that, because creativity is is needed rather than uh, political statements. Yeah, the interconnection issues are are substantial because it's not just simply hooking up. Uh, solar assets uh, to the grid. There's a lot of stuff that goes in. You know, and you mentioned there's different grid operators. Uh, some of the grids need upgrades. There needs to be some some type of software. There's a lot more focus on uh, enhancement software uh, for renewables. But there's a lot that actually goes into it. Some people may just think it's yeah, we'll just plug it up to the grid. But it is a lot more complicated, and that is starting to create a little bit more of a bottleneck on getting a lot more of these renewable sourced energy onto the grid and, and into homes. Yeah, you know, you know, one thing I realized is that, you know, all those things that you mentioned are, are true, but also is that there's a more trivial fact, which is that as a lot of solar developers are start, starting to file a lot of applications for grid interconnections, there's a bottleneck just in having enough people in the grid companies to process it. And and it's not just that, it's not just that all of these new solar developers are filing uh, permits. They all also all try to hire the people out of the, the grid companies. The poor grid companies, I mean, they have this, this dual blow of first suddenly, you know, in some cases have, you know, 10 times the applications that they've ever had before. And at the same time, see their best people leave to, to go into the energy transition world and, and help out. And, and that, you know, that just on a really trivial level creates a huge bottleneck in, in moving things forward. Um, and then as you say, you know, once you have the people and they can process the application, you have all the technical issues. Like, does this really fit in to the technical grid setup? Do we need to reinvest into the grid? And, and of course, I mean, that's where I hope that by putting more batteries into the mix, we as a solar developer, as a solar uh, owner, uh, we can be more helpful to the grid. And we can do, you know, we can help the grid not having to invest by by providing services, and and, and that also goes back to you know the license to operate. Like, can't we have to show society and, and we have to show our counterparties that we're not just taking, like we're 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 giving. I mean, yeah, we're giving, like we're we're creating green power. That's a good thing to start with, but we can't do that on on cannibalizing on on public infrastructure. We gotta be helpful to that too. And I think batteries is a, is a great way to. Um, to do that in the exodus of knowledge from the grid operators is an issue because we, we've had some guests on the show that have said I've, I've spent my entire career at a grid operator and i still don't fully understand it and so you've got yeah. <laughs> these long-term uh employees of, of grid operators are still saying it's so complicated that i don't even fully understand it and then yeah. you've got the exodus of even that knowledge leaving these companies it just yeah. further complicates the issues no but that's the thing and if you know they hire someone new out of college and they give them a two-month onboarding 
you know, that person is not going to be an as efficient application officer as, you know, the, 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 the two decade veteran that you mentioned. And, and even that veteran is saying, oh, you know, I, I, I every day I need to learn something new to do my job. So you, you have some respect for how tricky the whole thing is. The grid is, um, the grid is an, is an amazing thing. Someone said it's the, it's the largest machinery ever built because it's, it's actually in a way, it's just one big machine that kind of actually globally, you know, goes, it, it somewhat connects with itself across the globe that it's kind of thrilling when you think of it. It's, it's kind of like this thing that we all relied on and suddenly we, well, we didn't think of it. And now suddenly we have to open up our eyes and, and realize that, you know, this is a really important, um, thing. Yeah. The good news is we've got a lot of the younger generation that, that are coming out of, out of school, they're focused on the energy transition aspect. So it obviously takes a while to build that legacy knowledge up, but there's just so much interest in it that you're seeing a lot more go into this, any, any type of energy transition industry, whether it's a wind, solar, hydrogen, you name it. Also, just grid-enhancing technologies that will obviously help this uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this has got to be a really big software market in, in the future. I mean, already now, of course, you're seeing even like venture capital funds only focused on sort of grid advancement software, but like this has got to be an area where intelligence and, and AI and and, um, and intelligence going into things like the Internet of Things is just going to have a huge impact. Yeah, I said all those buzzwords in like one sentence, like, like you're supposed to do, but uh, uh, but that's not our business, at least not today. It's not something we know so much about because... Our business is really putting the stuff, the hard stuff, online, solar and batteries. And we're still not really at a point where all of those new funky things like the software is, is not really making a big change in how we do stuff. So, so it's stuff that we're looking at and we're trying to learn about it and, and thinking about it, but it's not kind of changing our equation in a major way today. How have you seen NIMBYism? over the past few years. I mean, is that something, I mean, obviously on-site's different than off-site, so talking more about kind of off-site, but have you, have you seen some of those concerns or pushback alleviated uh, over the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, NIMBYism, sometimes I don't use the word because I, then I sort of come immediately out of the solar. It, to me, it's, it's a little bit of a charged word where he's almost saying that anyone who opposes any kind of solar development is, is just like, speaking for their own good and, and and i think you know a lot of times when people raise questions about solar they, they have the right to do that and it, it's it's sometimes it's it's useful and we should we should have that that discussion i've seen it happen in a very dramatic way in sweden because or in 2020 we we um we finalized sweden's first large solar park so it was the first park like no one had ever seen a big solar park in, in sweden before and everyone was so happy, you know, that was, that was three and a half years ago. Everyone was just so happy. Like that municipality, they asked me to come and, and, uh, you know, basically do a rock concert. I was going to say not really, but like, it, you know, everyone turned up and it was just like a big champagne party because their municipality had the first solar park in Sweden and every stakeholder was there and it was, the champagne was flowing. Now fast forward three and a half years and, and, and we're developing a lot of solar across Sweden and other people have, have moved very fast to develop as well. Suddenly, you know, there's a lot of opposition, you can call it nimbyism or not, but it's just people raising concerns about should we really have solar here? You know, should we have solar on agricultural land? Should we have solar outside my window? Or it, it, sometimes I think it's just fair. People are saying, 
look, maybe I maybe don't mind having solar outside of my window, but what will it do to the value of my house? Like, is it, I shouldn't I be compensated if if actually it probably doesn't raise the value of the, of the house, right? I mean, it's like it's not people don't dream of looking out of a field of solar panels. It's not they don't look for the house with a beautiful vista of solar panels. So fair, you know, fair enough. And then we have to address those concerns as an industry, and then we have to find a way to 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 work with it. So um, I just try to be in that conversation and be uh, be understanding and, and listen into it. And um, you know, we have a nice summer house as well. And I was thinking, do I really want my summer house to be surrounded by solar panels like that? And no, <laughs> probably not. So you got to put yourself on both sides of, of that equation. I think. Well, let's just offer a big party with champagne and everything you, you sign up for a solar farm next to your house you get a big maybe weekend bash to get up on board and, and uh you know in the middle of it you get them to sign like when when the champagne has been flowing for a while <laughs> yeah yeah after a couple hours after a couple bottles and and yeah, sign on the dotted line yeah david so you understand this really well so that's uh that was a, <laughs> what i was trying to tell you exactly in in, in other words yeah well i was a former investment banker so i you know i got it <laughs> that's what you do what you did for a living yeah as you look forward to uh, to 2024, uh, what are your thoughts on how that looks? Now, and, and I'm talking about just the energy transition in general, and then maybe even more specifically uh, solar. But are there any are there any roadblocks or things that that keep you up at night uh, that you're concerned about? Yeah, yeah, we're in the middle of markets. Like the, the, there's at least oh yeah, at one point I counted how many independent markets that haven't have a potentially. Uh, a life-changing effect in our company with like five or six, everything from the polysilicon market to the power price markets to, to you know, the capital market, interest rates, etc. So as a developer and as an owner of energy producing assets, uh, it, it's just like there's no end to stuff you could worry about if, you, if you're inclined to worry. And then I think looking back at our last conversation, I think I started by saying that, you know, it's, it's usually my daughters that, that keep me up at night and this. And then the problem is that once they woke me up, I started thinking about all these markets and then, uh, but thankfully they're actually sleeping better now. So, uh, I don't wake up as often. I think and on a more general note, what we've been coming back to a few times in this conversation is this, the, you know, the solar coaster. That's some like, that's what industry veterans and in, in, in the solar industry, it's just a, a term that people use if they've been in the industry for a long time, because it's been going up and down and up and down forever, you know, since the, since the first, like super happy boom days in, in the late 90s, early 2000s when, when, when the Germans put on the, the first feed-in tariffs. And so I think on a general level, I'm just worried about the solar coaster thing. Like it just goes from, from very sunny one day to pitch black the other day. And, and then, but then it always goes back again. So you just, that's why it's nice to, you know, take on a lot of capital and have the strong equity partner so you can, you can just ride through, uh, through the, the valleys and troughs. But I wouldn't single out any single concern at this point because the market is so dynamic, so much is happening and, and stuff has been moving back and forth rapidly over the last year. So there's not one single thing I'm, I'm really worried about. So I'm, I'm sleeping better these days, actually, than I did in 2021 when we lost Spoke. That's good. I, mean, I, I guess solar and, and other technologies aren't immune to just, you said the solar coaster, but just the, the energy cyclicality. Uh, because it may legacy oil and gas guy, I mean, used to, uh, the cyclicality in, in oil and gas up and down and up and down. And it's just a common theme across energy. It's just so emerging at this point. And then 
it just becomes second nature and, and everybody understands in the future how you operate in the, in the high times, but how you also operate in the low times. Yeah, that's really, really true. And I mean, that that is, you're getting experience in our industry is, pro- is probably very much about that, just as much as it, as it is about the, the actual content of, of understanding the industry. But it's, you know, it's very similar. And it's not a, not by coincidence that the industry is full of people that came out of oil and gas because it is quite similar. And not from the ESG point of view, maybe, but uh, but from uh, from many other points of views and from like how you, yeah, how, like you say, how you ride the high times and, and, and the low times and, and still turn, you know, create a, a long lasting business out of it that, that can survive and thrive over the long term. Well, Harold, it has been great having you on the show again. It, it... We talked about earlier. It's it's surprising that it's been almost two years uh, since we've spoke, but there's been a lot of good things happening in the industry uh, with a light, and it was really exciting to just hear uh, all the advancements and things going on, and the fact that you're actually sleeping at night uh, is good to hear as well. I hope I won't regret saying that. <laughs> no, but thanks, you, thanks for joining us. It was a great conversation. Appreciate you joining us and catching up. And and, and like I said, it was really. Really great to hear a lot of the progress that has been made uh, since we last spoke. Yeah, thank you, David. It's always, it's always great talking. You do a great show, and, and thanks for having me on again. I'm David Bam Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged, out every second Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. If you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. It's a bi-weekly look at the biggest and most important stories in energy. Hosted by Ed Crooks, with regular guests Dr. Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and Amy Myers-Jaffe of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab, plus a roster of analysts, commentators, and industry leaders, it's everything you need to know in one place. So next Friday, from 7 a.m. Eastern Time, join the Energy Gang conversation, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.